0: Chapter 4 of The Philosophy of Immanuel Kant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada The Philosophy of Immanuel Kant by Alexander Dunlop Lindsay. Chapter 4 The categories and the principles of pure understanding kant makes the distinction between perception and understanding depend upon the distinction between the receptivity and the spontaneity of the mind in the aesthetics he has been concerned with time and space as elements in what seems to be given to the mind before we begin to ask the questions of science before we analyze describe, or classify. Before we have to think, we perceive. Time and space are not got at by thinking or generalization. For before we can say anything about any part of our experience, it is given us in a certain spatial and temporal order. If we open our eyes at any moment, we are, without any conscious effort of thought on our part, confronted with an elaborate content. It seems simple to distinguish this receptive attitude of the mind in perception from its activity in thinking. The distinction is not really so simple as it appears, for we all know that what we perceive depends, at least to some extent, on the mind's activity. We are familiar with the reflection that men see what they want to see or what they are looking for. This is clearly shown in the case of hearing, by the difference in what we hear when we are listening to a language we understand and when we are listening to an unfamiliar language. Or in the common experience when, after failing to hear what someone has said, we think what it must have been, and then seem to recall the sound, not as we heard it, but as we should have heard it, if we had heard it rightly. Anyone who reflects on the process of fast reading will realize that we do not perceive or notice all the letters on a page we fill in from our imagination as we discover when we read words that are not on the page. It is a very hard thing, giving up all the interpretation and inference, to describe faithfully just what is there to see. Passive perception, then, does not exist. And our thoughts affect our perception. Yet at the same time, the distinction between thought and perception, although not simple, is real. For although our previous thought affects our perception and we see things already classified, see books and tables and chairs, not merely colored surfaces, yet we can distinguish between simple immediate perception and the process of thought, which we begins when we ask, what is that? In essence, when we begin to make judgments. The characteristic of thought, according to Kant, is synthesis or putting together, and all synthesis is the work of the mind. When we begin to describe and classify the contents of our perception, we pick out separate qualities from the continuous whole we perceive and group them together. This grouping is, of course, determined by the likenesses and differences which we perceive everywhere, but we do not, in judging, confine ourselves to noticing likeness and difference. For any content of our perception has some point of resemblance and some of difference with any other. We are concerned with likenesses that go with or are the signs of other likenesses, on the basis of perceived likeness, we erect the notion of things and qualities of a certain kind. In doing this, we go beyond what we see and unite and arrange the contents of our perception through concepts. That is what we are doing when we say that is a so-and-so. For example, if I say that a rock is like a dog, I am simply expressing a likeness I perceive. I do not imply that the rock is therefore alive or will bark. I am not going beyond how the rock looks. But if I say that object is a dog, I assert that all that is implied in being a dog will hold of that object, in essence, that it will have a certain appearance and behavior which is known. I can anticipate, therefore, how it will behave, look, and sound under certain circumstances all these phenomena the appearance the barking the running though i may perceive them at different times and places are grouped together in the judgment that is a dog this is what kant means by saying concepts depend on functions by function i mean the unity of the act of arranging different representations under one common representation Concepts, therefore, always refer to perception, and it is by means of concepts that we are enabled to introduce such order into what we perceive, that we can anticipate from what we perceive, what we shall perceive. Perceptions without concepts are blind. Without concepts, what we perceive would not lead us in any way beyond what is immediately given. Thoughts without contents are empty. Concepts are nothing and have no meaning apart from the contents of perception which they unify. Most of these concepts are what is called empirical. We got at them by observing likenesses and differences in what we perceive, and observing which are significant and important, and which are what we call accidental. Science, in its discovery of laws, is only carrying further this process which is implied in all simple judgments. By observing likenesses and differences, their uniformities and variations, and discovering those which are a key to the rest, we improve our concepts and thereby have more knowledge of what we call natural laws, and can more and more anticipate experience. With these empirical concepts and their development, Kant is not concerned but there are certain concepts of which Hume had observed that they are not obtained in this ordinary way from an examination of the contents of experience. The two with which he chiefly concerned himself were substance and cause. These concepts seem to play an especially important part in the ordering and arranging of the concepts of experience. For the work of science, In moving from a simple observation of likenesses and differences to a knowledge of empirical laws depends upon certain assumptions or principles, like the principle of causation or the principle of conservation of energy. These principles imply concepts not derived, like the others, from generalizations from experience. They are the synthetic a priori judgments which as we have seen, constitute a special problem for Kant. Kant is first concerned to ask where these a priori concepts come from and how many of them there are. This inquiry he calls the metaphysical deduction of the categories. Having answered that question, he then goes on to ask, by what right we assume that these principles in our dealing with experience This, the most important and difficult section of the critique, he calls the transcendental deduction of the categories. Most concepts, as we saw, are empirical. We take certain likenesses and differences we observe as a mark of a real unity in the things, the different natures of different things we do not fully know, but we distinguish them by the different uniformities we observe. And in order to explain our experience, we assume the unity underlying those perceived likenesses. Iron, dog, fire are names for the natures of things which we see manifested in our experience. The concept, then, is got from what we perceive, though it stands for something more than we perceive. How then can there be any concepts which are not got from the empirical differences of things we perceive? Let us take such a concept as substance and see whether we can discover where it come from. Locke has been puzzled by discovering that he could not, in any object, find anything which was its substantiality. Calling anything a substance is not like saying that it is hard or green or heavy we are not concerned with specific differences in things but we are not therefore saying what is meaningless there is something namely substance which we can distinguish from the hardness or colour or weight that we perceive that something we do not perceive we assume it whenever we talk of a thing being hard and green and heavy A thing's substantiality is just the unity of its perceivable qualities. But such a unity is implied in the concept of any object. Substance then is a name for one of the general principles implied in our assuming that what we perceive are real objects. Kant generalizes the result of this inquiry into a particular concepts of this kind. He holds that a priori concepts or categories, in essence the concepts which we do not get from empirical differences of things, stand for principles implied in thinking of things as objects or in judging. If we want, therefore, to find out the number of the categories, we must ask how many different kinds of unity are implied in judgment or what are the conditions of judging any object, Kant does not here help, but rather misleads us in this inquiry, for he unfortunately thought that the different kinds of judgment can be discovered without further ado by taking the list given in formal logic. He therefore first makes a list of categories, based on the logical forms of judgment, and then tries to show the connection between these categories and the principles which were, as he had discovered, assumed in the mathematical sciences. The actual movement of his thought is, I think, different. He asks if there are any general conditions implied in all judgment. His answer is that all judgments, all statements, that is, which claim to be true, imply determination of time and space from that determination certain principles can be deduced if time and space are implied in all judging then these principles will equally be implied and will hold of all things which can be objects for us it would be easier to understand kant's arguments If we invert the order of the critique and begin with examining the nature of the principles of the understanding or of one of them, the categories which are of importance in Kant's argument are quantity, quality, substance, causation, reciprocity, and necessity, possibility, and actuality, the last three are less important than the others and we shall not deal with them. To the first five of these categories correspond the following principles. 1. Quantity. All phenomena are, with reference to their perception, extensive quantities. 2. Quality. In all phenomena, the real, which is the object of a sensation, has intensive quantity, that is, a degree. The last three are classed under a general heading of analogies of experience whose principle is experience is possible only through the representation of a necessary connection of perceptions they are number three the principle of the permanence of substance in all changes of phenomena the substance is permanent and its quantum is neither increased nor diminished in nature number four Principle of the succession of time, according to the law of causality. All changes take place according to the law of connection between cause and effect. Number five, principle of coexistence, according to the law of reciprocity or community. All substances, so far as they can be perceived as coexistent in space, are always affecting each other reciprocally. These principles, Kant points out, are assumed in the sciences of applied mathematics. The application of geometry to the world we experience assumes that all phenomena are extensive quantities. Physics assumes that quantitative expression can be given to the qualities of objects, other than their size, their weight, for example. And all scientific determination of change assumes the three principles which Kant calls analogies of experience the permanence or conservation of amount in changes, the necessary connection of things in time, and the reciprocal interdependence of things which exist at the same time. These principles are not proved by science their validity is assumed in all scientific investigation on what then does it rest we shall follow kant's argument more easily if we take his account of one of these principles the principle of causation for what is said of that will hold with necessary changes of the ethers and as we have noticed it was hume's criticism of causation which first led kant to formulate the critical problem hume had pointed out that we had never such insight into causal connection as to be able from mere inspection of cause to foretell the effect without any reference to experience he declared on the contrary that there was a difference between observed succession and causation so far as concerned the objects observed In each case, we see first one thing and then another. The difference then between mere succession and causal connection can only be in us, in the way we come to feel about certain successions we observe. In technical language, the necessity of causation is subjective. How does Kant answer this precision? He begins as is usual with him by taking the problem a little further back. Causation is the connection we predicate between what we see at one time and what we see at another. Now, if we take into account only the fact that we see one thing at one time and another thing at another, there is no difference between what we see when we successively see two things which we judge to coexist. And when we see two things, one of which we judge to have succeeded the other in time, Hume therefore proved too much. His argument would show that we have no grounds for distinguishing between apprehension of succession and succession in apprehending. But such a distinction is the basis of our apprehension and understanding of change or movement. If, then, we examine how we distinguish between apprehension of succession and succession in apprehending, we may see on what the principle of causation is based. An instance will help to make this point clear. Suppose that I am sitting in a room and look first at the door and then turn around and look at the window. There are two successive acts of apprehending. The content of the first is the door, of the second the window. But the succession, I say, is in my apprehending. The door and the window have coexisted all the time. Suppose again that I look out the window and see a cab in front of the house opposite, come back into the room and then look out again and see the cab in front of a house further down. Here again are two successive acts of apprehending. The contents of the first, houses with cab in front of one house, of the second, houses with cab in front of another. This time I say the houses have gone on coexisting. But the cap has moved. Difference in what I see this time is due, not to me, but to the cap. The succession is in the thing apprehended. If we just think of the contents apprehended, we have first A, then B, and say A and B coexist in the first instance, and have C, D and C, E, and say D and E have been successive in the other why in the second case do we not say when we look out the window the second time here is another row of houses which though they look exactly the same as the ones i saw last time have got a cab in a different place that is the kind of thing one does say in a dream why would it be inadmissible in waking light let us first ask how we ever come to make this distinction between change in the contents of our perception, which is due to change in us, and change in the thing we perceive. Look out of a window into a busy street. As we look, certain things remain the same, the houses opposite, the lampposts, and so on, but other things change. The permanence of part of the contents guarantees us that the change we perceive is not due to us. If it were, these would change also. Therefore, it must be uncertain of the things. Change is perceived against a background that is permanent and does not change, but any such particular perception is, of course, very limited. We do not see all the world at once and we only come to know a larger extent of reality by means of memory which enables us to put together what we see at one time with what we see at another. We have got to try and understand how it is that we make this distinction, which is clear to us in small isolated bits of experience, hold of all experience. Now, if reality did not change and we were conscious of our own movements, we could go from one point to another of reality and back again and could be aware that the changes in our perception were all due, not to the change in reality, but to us, were our history. We should know that the different things we saw were coexisting all the time, and we should, in describing them, try to describe them as in a map, as we should perceive them if we saw them all at once. The succession would be subjective, the coexistence, objective. If we perceive nothing but change, we should be incapable of distinguishing between our changes and the change outside us, for all succession in our experiencing would be experience of what was successive and there could be no distinction between psychology and science. Our experience of reality is not like either of those suppositions, but like both of them combined. Some succession of our experiencing is experience of the coexisting, some experience of succession. Reality stretches out beyond us in space, some of it changing and some of it permanent. We cannot tell simply from the difference in what we perceive, whether the difference come from change in us or change in a thing. We can tell that only on the assumption that we are having fragmentary views of the whole that is continuous. The only continuity we know is the continuity of our own experience made possible by memory, and we try to interpret that experience in the light of larger continuity of the world which our experience breaks up. As we go from one place to another, notice now this thing, now that. We can test interpretations made on this assumption. Wrong interpretations are those which make our experience inconsistent. If we thought that what happened at one time had no relation with what happened at another, that anything might happen at any time. Our experience and our own life would be the merest jumble our experience attains consistency only as we learn more and more to disentangle the difference in experience which come from our changes from the changes and the variety which are part of the whole connected system of reality of which we see now one fragment then another the distinction between succession in our apprehending and apprehension of succession which is the basis of all experience of change, implies the recognition of change as not arbitrary but part of a connected system of reality. As Kant puts it in his formulation of the principle of the analogies of experience, experience is only possible by means of the representation of a necessary connection of perceptions. But if our perception of reality is fragmentary, How can we think of reality as other than fragmentary? How can we fill up the gaps? Only by thinking of the whole as a connected system in space and time. For it is the nature of space and time that they can be thought of independently of the specific nature of the things in space and time, and that the space and time we perceive in any one experience must be thought of as parts of an all-embracing space and an all-embracing time. We cannot follow the whole history of a change from A to B. We can only say that if our experience is to have any consistency, we must think that the fact that we first solve A and then solve B implies in this case that the change from A to B is part of the continuous system of change in time and it is determined in time. But to think of an event as determined in time is not to think of it as determined by time. For time in itself could not produce one thing more than another. It is to think of it as determined by the nature of what precedes it in time. We therefore conclude that like causes have like effects. For if anything could cause anything, We should never know that change in what we observe was due to change in us. In the position of our bodies, for example, an experience of objective change would be impossible. The principle does not tell us, of itself, what causes what. That can only be discovered by empirical investigation. That is necessary because we do not, as we seem to have assumed above, simply see one thing becoming another. We see parts of all kinds of changes. Hence, succession may be objective but not causal. Science has by observation and experiment to disentangle and isolate different changes, but it could not do this without assuming the principle of causality. Causation then and the other assumptions of the physical sciences are shown by Kant to be grounds of the possibility of experience. We cannot deny them without denying elementary distinctions in our experience, without which life would be a chaos, and which are assumed and justified every moment. While Kant thus demonstrates the validity of such principles, he is also inconsistent on the limitations of their application. They are principles which give consistency to experience, but must not be applied save in reference to what we experience. They apply, in his words, only to phenomena. The purpose of this limitation can, again, be most easily seen by examining the principle of causality. By means of that principle, we connect one event with another. But the reality is not two different but connected events, but a continuous process. The continuous process escapes us because our perception of it is fragmentary and discontinuous, inasmuch as a judgment of causal connection asserts that the events we separately notice are connected, it is true, but it is false if taken to imply that reality consists of a series of discontinuous events or stages which are yet connected. Such an assumption would mean in Kant's words That causation is applied not to phenomena, things as they appear to us, but to things in themselves, things considered apart from the manner in which they appear to us. If we realize its falsehood, we can, he thinks, evade the contradictions which he examines in the dialectic. End of chapter 4 Recorded by Kualada